Because honestly, the, the going back to it is what's going to really cement it into your heart. So I hope that you'll take some time to do that. <clears throat> so before I get started, we're going to start off in Acts 2, if you all want to turn to Acts 2. Now, two weeks ago, um, we started this series, and we went through Acts 1, and we left the disciples sort of waiting, right? Jesus had told them to stay in Jerusalem and to wait and see what was going to happen. Um, now, as they're waiting, lots of people are coming into Jerusalem. This, this time is a, is a holiday for them. It's about to be a new holiday for them. But it's an old holiday, which is they sort of re, they celebrate harvest. So these ten men stayed together in the same room for ten days, and they prayed, and they waited. They waited for what would turn out to be God's timing, God's perfect timing here. Um, God was about to start His church off in an amazing way, and there was going to be lots of people to see it. He was gathering these people, these God-fearing Jews were coming into Jerusalem, and they're all going to see what's about to happen. For some of them, it's going to move them um, to do what's right. For some of them, it's going to move them to do what's wrong. And you'll see that as we get into it. The theme of this series is, what is God's plan for the church? God has laid out a plan for his church, and how it's supposed to act, and how it's supposed to work, and how we're, where we're supposed to gain our power from. And then the response that Satan has to this great power. Satan who's already been crushed. Satan who's already been defeated. But how does he respond to a church that's on fire for God? So we're going to look at both of those again today. We're going to do Acts 2 and we're going to do Acts 7. We're not going to read all of it, but we're going to show sort of what it looks like when God's church is on fire and then how does Satan respond so that we can watch out for it so that this church doesn't fall into the same snares that they did. So if you're at Acts, on uh, Acts 2, I'm going to start us off reading the first 13 verses. Now when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these, all, all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us Hears them from our native language. And then we're going to skip down to verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said, these guys have had too much wine to drink. All right, so that was worth waiting 10 days for, wasn't it? The sound like a tornado rips through this house, and everyone around them hears it, and fire comes down. Seeming fire comes down and, and comes upon these people. God's saying, just in case anybody was wondering, if these guys are the ones with the true message, here's a big loud sound and here's some fire I'm going to brand these men with, men and women. These men are mine. 
this is the church. You better listen up. So he brought everybody to Jerusalem. Here's this perfect timing. And then he makes a real loud noise and says, you better all come. And then they start talking a lot, right? They start, they start sermonizing. They start telling the people. And everyone hears it in their own tongue. And there's tongues, there's, there's, you can go back and read, there's like eight different tongues mentioned here. Um, so many of these people may not have even heard about Jesus, and if they did, many of them didn't know what happened. They had been in Jerusalem for, the, for when Jesus was crucified, then they went back home. And they didn't necessarily know anything about what happened after that. They're about to find out. Um, the disciples who in the past had been timid at times and weak at times and sometimes foolish, are about to be empowered. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're going to see that if you had to depend on yourself, you'd be in trouble. But here's what the Holy Spirit can do. And it's having an impact. People are looking around and saying, what could this mean? What in the world is going on? What, what's this loud sound? What's this fire? What's this branding on these people? And how is it that they can speak in every language all of a sudden? Now think about how you might respond to that. It might be a little interesting that day, right? But I hope you would at least listen. And I hope that your first response wouldn't be, these guys are drunk. Because some of these were silly enough to say, well, these guys must be drunk. I don't know how many drunk people you guys have seen, but the drunk people I've seen don't learn new languages. No. And the drunk people I've seen don't even speak their own language that well anymore, right? It starts to deteriorate, right? Okay, so they didn't learn every language by being drunk. But this, this, is, just, this is just the beginning of how they're going to try to rip these guys down. Um, all right, well, let's move on. We're going to move on to uh, verse 14. I'm going to go 14 through 21 now. I hope you'll open your Bibles today because we're going we're to be heavy into God's Word and it's important. And uh, he, like I said, he's got something for you today. All right. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you this. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. So not only are these men and women pretty much literally on fire, there's flames on these people, and, and speaking as if the Tower of Babel incident never happened, everyone's hearing the same language, but they're fulfilling a prophecy, literally living out this prophecy by Joel. And you're going to see all through Acts, we're going to, they're going to draw them back to the Old Testament and say, look, we fulfilled this. Look, Jesus fulfilled this. Look, Jesus fulfilled this. And they're doing this because these people are used to the Old Testament. That's what they have. And they need to see that there's a change happening, that Jesus is fulfilling all of that. And so they're going to keep bringing them back. So he says, look, we just fulfilled what Joel is talking about. Peter says, look, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. 
This is just what happens when the scriptures, um, this is just what the scriptures said would happen when God poured out his spirit. Now listen up if you want to be saved. Okay, let's read on. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man has handed over to you, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to, the, to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. <clears throat> Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and was poured out, and has poured out what you see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, so Peter is giving proofs of the Messiah, right? Again, he goes back to one of their heroes, David, and says, look, David's talking about this Messiah. David's talking about Jesus. He predicted him. We saw him. We're witnesses to it. We saw him ascend. Um, are you going to believe us? He's bringing them to the point. You had the whole Old Testament, right? And you believed a certain way that a Messiah is coming. He's bringing them to the point, is Jesus the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Are you going to change now or are you going to go on? Now just verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's up to them now, right? He's telling them, David said it, Joel said it, we saw him, we saw him ascend, we saw him go to the right hand of the Father. Are you going to believe us or are you going to believe the Old Testament? Or are you wasting your time still looking for the coming Messiah? And there are people who are still looking for the coming Messiah. And they're wasting their time. His first coming is done. All right, let's finish off. We're going to see how did these people respond. And this is pretty awesome. Picking up in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord of God, our Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an impact this has. Peter is preaching about the new way. Peter's preaching about the new covenant and the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit's working in that crowd. It doesn't matter that Peter's the one saying it. It is not the messenger. It's the fact that the message was going out and the Holy Spirit was there and these people were coming to Christ 3,000 in one day. They had just crucified Jesus and now they're hearing he was the Messiah. And they're saying, what can we do? What can we do? And Peter tells them, repent. Seek forgiveness and be baptized. Literally, the church is born that day. This church that we have now 2,000 years later, that we meet in separate churches and separate denominations, that's how the church was, was born. Everything after that's been a little bit of man's doing. So the Holy Spirit didn't just come down to get them excited, although that worked out pretty well. He came down to implant eternal life into them. Those 3,000 had eternal life from that day forward, just like I hope everybody in this room does, that the Holy Spirit is within you and that it has implanted eternal life in you. I'm not going to get into the... I'm going to read the rest. We're not going to get into it. There's a ton there. But this, this next little piece is really what church is supposed to be like. When you think about what should a church be like and how should I decide what church to go to, this is what church is supposed to be like. If it doesn't look like this, help it be like that. Don't just go somewhere else until you find it. You won't. Help someplace be like this. Picking up in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I don't know when between then and now it turned out that every time we, we disagree, we start a new denomination. But at some point, man has turned that into it, right? This was one church. These people were together. They had everything in common. If someone was in need, you sold your own stuff so that that person was no longer in need. And it didn't matter if they had disagreements. They, they made sure they were unified. They were together enough that they were unified. That doesn't mean they didn't disagree. It just means they were unified and they saw the world the way Jesus sees the world, which is a global thing. The Holy Spirit's working around each and every one of you. So if it's just about you, that's hard to see. But if he's working all around you, you should just be a part of that. You should be a piece of that. You should be the one showing them Jesus. So from Acts 2, we've got to say, what is God's plan for his church? I'd say it's pretty simple. If you wait on the Holy Spirit and act when it prompts people, if you wait for the Holy Spirit and act, people around you will be changed. Not because of what you did, but because the Holy Spirit is already moving. Unbelievers will come to Christ. The Holy Spirit can do a lot with a very little bit from human beings. Have faith that when you're obedient to, the, to His Spirit, that 
things will happen. Because they will. He's promised that they will, and I don't think I, I can't prove to you that he won't. Every time I've ever done this, he does. It's not always what I think it'll be, but he does it. So why don't we see this type of power now? When we talk about the Holy Spirit around Christians, it's often sort of a misunderstanding about what he is, who he is, what he means for us. And so when we start to misunderstand things, we either argue a little bit or we avoid it because we're fearful of it, right? I don't want to talk about that topic because we all kind of disagree about it and we all misunderstand each other. I don't want to fight. So we just, in fear, kind of back away to the point where we don't harness the power of the Holy Spirit. It's one of those that we don't like to talk about that much, even though he's what has given you eternal life. So we minimize the power that we have through the Holy Spirit, and the enemy laughs at us. The enemy laughs at us because he shouldn't be able to mess with us like he does. But he does, because we don't say, Holy Spirit, I need your protection. Holy Spirit, guide me. Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy Spirit, help me know, to know what to do. Don't shy away from the Spirit of God. Live your life seeking to be in tune with it. Seeking to be in tune with Him. This tradition of fear and many other traditions that we have, we're going to find as we turn to Acts 7. So you can, you can turn over to Acts 7 as I transition here. This is what Satan uses to respond. Satan uses our traditions against us. I'm not going to read all of Acts 7. Acts 7 is a lot. And this is Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. We're going to just pick through and, and get the main points, get the outline, and get the context, and you'll see why. So, Stephen's going before the Sanhedrin. Anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's 70, the head of the Jews, 70 men who literally have the Old Testament memorized. They know everything that's there. They're supposed to know it backwards and forwards. Um, and he's going to give them a sermon. And this is going to be a really powerful sermon. And uh, you may read it and say, well, it just sounds like he's kind of given a, a history lesson. I don't see how there's any power in this. Well, you're right a little bit. It's hard to, to get. But why did they kill him at the end if it's just a history lesson? They killed him because he's about to pick apart all their traditions. All these things that they hold dear, he's going to pick it apart. Um, now, they aren't doing this just because he's giving them a history lesson. It's because the end of their church power and politics are kind of coming to an end. If what he's saying is true, that stuff's over. So as we go through this together, I challenge you to look at your own traditions. That's what I'm going to call out, obviously, at the end. How are you repeating things that aren't based in truth? Do you know why you do what you do? You should know why you do what you do, why you do everything you do, and not just because your parents did it not just because that's what we do in America, not just because that's what we do in church. You should know why you do what you do. Okay, so I'll define a tradition for you in this sense. A tradition is a passing on a way of thinking or acting to the next generation. That's the kind of tradition. I'm not necessarily talking about you guys have turkey for Thanksgiving. That's a tradition. In this sense, I'm talking about how you think and how you speak and how you act that being passed down to the next generation. A lot of these started with roots in truth, and over time, it's like the telephone game. Everybody knows what the telephone game is, right? 
The next generation waters it down a little bit. The next generation waters it down a little bit. And if you don't check yourself, you're doing things that aren't based in any kind of truth. You're just doing what you know to do. We love traditions, don't we? They mean we don't have to change. I love traditions. They feel good, right? They're kind of warm and fuzzy and nostalgic. They feel safe. I've been whistling the song Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof all week because of this sermon. I even, even the song about tradition makes me feel good, right? That's a great song. And, they, and that, they turn out to get that broken up a little bit. <clears throat> but some of you, some of your families may have a, tra- a tradition of abuse. A tradition of materialism or anger or greed or pride or gossip or lying or legalism or weakness or manipulation or being lazy or putting everything else before church, right? Those, those type of things get passed down from generation to generation. I don't, I don't want to pass that down to my kids, right? You don't want to pass that down to your kids. We don't want to pass that down to the next generation of this church, Just because your grandfather did it and their grandfather before them did it doesn't make it good or right. It it feels that way because we've repeated it, but it it doesn't make it good or right. Um, So this can make people with perfectly good intentions, good Christian people with good intentions, it turns them into just an obnoxious noise that turns everybody off from church. It makes us sound hypocritical. It makes us sound judgmental because that's all we know. And I can tell you, that noise does not sound good to God either. That's not the noise he wants to hear in his ears. Satan uses these traditions to divide and destroy and perpetuate. Just like we learned last time. He wants to divide your family. He wants to divide you from your church and from your family. And this is one of the things he uses to do it. All right, we're going to jump into Acts 7. Simple context here. Stephen was just appointed by the disciples to be... Uh oh. Okay. All right. Boys, Isaac, Judah, why don't you follow her out, okay, please? It's okay. Guys, go out with mom, please. Right now. Right now. All right. Simple context here is Stephen was just appointed by the disciples. Uh, to be one of the people who hands out the food to the widows and everyone in need, right? And so when that happens, people start to argue with him. He has chances to hear from these Jewish leaders who say, what are you talking about? Jesus is not the Messiah. We don't believe any of that. But nobody can argue with him because he's so empowered that when they look at his face, he looks like an angel is what the previous chapter says. He looks like an angel. He's so filled with the Holy Spirit that he just goes, Oh, you think that's true? Here's the Old Testament. That's what, that's what that's about. Here's the Old Testament. That's what that's about. And they miss it. So they call him in front of the Sanhedrin and say, prove it. What, what in the world is going on? You're saying that the temple's no good. You're saying that all this stuff. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1. We're just going to do verses 1 through 3 for now. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to Father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. 
So Stephen starts off talking about the father of their nation, Abraham. He's talking to 70 men again that know the scriptures frontwards and backwards. And they believe that their law, their temple, and their land is the most important thing. They have God right here in the Holy Land, in the temple, and their law is what governs that. That's the three things they hold most dear. Um, Stephen is challenging that right away. Abraham did not receive the promise in the temple in Jerusalem. God was working in a different place, right? He was in Mesopotamia, and they don't really like Mesopotamia that much at this time. God didn't need the temple to work. You say, right, well, who cares? These guys really did. All of their traditions were built around this temple now. All of their power, all of what they did was built around this temple and their land and their law. So for the rest of the day, I want you to imagine there's a wall right here, just like a seven-foot wall by four feet wide. It's the ugliest wall you've ever seen. It looks like a child put it together. There's pieces missing. It's kind of crumbling in places. For the rest of today, this, this wall here represents their traditions. And it's ugly because it's held up by their righteousness. What they could do, what they could do with the law, that's what's holding that stinking wall up. And it's real ugly. Stephen, by saying Abraham doesn't need to be in Jerusalem, take, just takes a little poke at that wall, and the whole thing quakes a little bit. It's not being held up by a whole lot, and he just pokes it, just pokes it a little bit. All right, we're going to read nine, uh, start again at 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard this, that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our forefathers on their first visit. Just as you, as you hear every verse of this, listen to what he's saying. He's always telling you where, and he's always saying your forefathers. He's not saying Jacob's sons. He's bringing them back to your forefathers are the ones who sold him, and they were in Egypt. He just keeps bringing them back to all these things that, they, that are pushing their buttons. Pick it up in verse 13. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph went for, sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain amount of money. Okay. Again, where was Joseph when he saved the Jews? Was he in Jerusalem? No, he was not. He was in Egypt. How did the Jews feel about Egypt at this point? They were about to be enslaved by Egypt. They don't like to think back to Egypt and the fact that God was working anyway in Egypt. Now, in the Old Testament, Joseph is a symbol of a redeemer. And those 12 brothers rejected that redeemer. Can you think of another redeemer that these Jews have rejected, maybe? More than one, but one in particular, right? Lastly, Joseph was taken care of not because he followed every rule, every tradition, not because he was at the temple making sacrifices. God protected him because he had faith. It wasn't about that. So Stephen is taking another poke at this monstrosity of a wall. 
and the wall quivers a little more, and, that, and the bricks start to fall. Stephen's going to move on to Moses. Moses is the one he spends the most time on. We're not going to read all that. Moses is, he spends the most time on because Moses is the hero of heroes to them. He really is another redeemer in the Old Testament. He brought them out of Egypt, right? So he's going to spend some time with Moses. Let's see what he says. We're going to pick up in verse 29. All right, so it says, When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. I looked it up. Mount, Mount Sinai is like eight hours away from Jerusalem. So again, not in Jerusalem. It's like eight hours away by car. When we saw this, he was amazed at the sight. <clears throat> and he went to have a closer look. And he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. As I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Now this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in where in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. So again, we get it now, right? He's not in Jerusalem. He's not at the temple, right? Again, Redeemer figure was rejected by the Jews. After he, after he protected a Jew, they kind of rejected him. Right? He was protecting someone, he killed an Egyptian, and then he fled to Midian. Jews, one of the greatest blessings in a Jewish person's life is children. Where did these blessings come from for Moses? Where did these kids come? In Midian. Again, again, God is blessing him somewhere else. Don't think for a second that these Jewish leaders are missing any of this. Stephen's now is using kind of a mallet on that wall. And he's sort of saying, look, your great Moses is the one. He said in his own words, there will be another like me. That person is Jesus. I'm telling you guys. Stephen says, I'm telling you, that's Jesus. Moses predicted him. We'll pick it up in verse 38. He was in the assembly in the wilderness where the angel who spoke to him on, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Israel. So they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them up to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rephim and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now he's hitting them really hard where it counts, and that is the law. This law you guys hold so tightly to, your ancestors completely denied it. Look at Look at what God tried to do for you. He said, here's the laws to live by. 
And you couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And God had, to, God had to keep sending us to Babylon and to Egypt to try to get our attention. This is what the law does for you. Why do you want it? You can't keep it up. Your wall is ugly. He's saying to these guys, look, I know there's literally 200,000 things and I'm not allowed to take more than 40 steps on the Sabbath day and all that stuff. What is it getting you? You made that up. God tried to give you the laws and you, 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 you sent them back. And then you had to walk blindly for 40 years in the desert. They forgot that this life isn't about living a legalistic set of miserable lives. It's about a relationship. And Stephen's saying, forget all that. You have to have faith. Faith is what's important. A relationship with the Redeemer is what's important, not your hundreds of laws. So Stephen now is taking the sledgehammer to this wall, and he's about to bring us home. And we're just going to read 44 through 50 and see what happens. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations of God. <clears throat> the, the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house. However, the Most High does not live in the houses made of human hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Okay, so now these guys are getting a little ticked off. Did you just say that the temple's not important too? So first of all, our land isn't holy anymore. Our laws are meaningless. And the temple, where literally where we say God is only right in that temple, that that's not important anymore either. And Stephen's saying, no. Stephen's saying, you're the temple now. Your bodies are the temple. You are the church. So with one big slam, that whole, that whole thing comes down. Now, let's see how he finishes them off. And you're going to read the rest of this and say, well, who finishes who off? I'm telling you, let's see who finishes who off, all right? 51, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? <laughs> all I can name is the ones you did. I can't find any you didn't. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received a law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So, he finishes them off with showing them that these walls are meaningless 
and they literally can't take it anymore. They literally have to get up. They cover their ears and start screaming and rush at him. But he looks up and he, he's, I bet you he's at a little bit of peace. If he was so filled with the Holy Spirit to say this to them, and he's able to look up and see, you know what, I'm right. Look, Jesus, Jesus is at the right hand of God. I feel okay about this. And then they stone him. And don't miss this, that Saul was there. That the coats were at his feet. Don't think for a second that this isn't the start of Saul. That this is the start of a change. This is the start of what's... What the, the life he's living now is really important because it's going to be really important when he's writing the rest of the New Testament. Okay, so God's timing is perfect and he uses Stephen's for something amazing right here. So... I don't want you to think for a second that this is just a history lesson. And I didn't even pull all of it out. That's why I want you to go read it for yourselves. You're going to see, now that, you've, now that you're saying, what is he saying to them? There's, there's thing after thing after thing of him saying, look, your land is not what's important. Your, your traditions are not what's important. And the temple is not what's important. And he just keeps poking and poking and poking at that. But he did, do you think he did this just to get them mad? He says, forgive them for this sin. Don't hold this sin against them. I really want them to have a chance to change. I want these leaders to have a chance to change. Change their hearts because of this. So we'll close with this. Your wall's here too. My wall's here. And mine is ugly. What traditions are holding up your wall? What is it, that's, what is it that you think your, self-righteous, your righteousness is going to get you any place? What's holding that up? It keeps you in a state of weakness. It keeps you out of line with the Holy Spirit. Do you feel the Holy Spirit pushing you, nudging you, leading you? Or have you tuned him out? A lot of people have just tuned him out. And you don't know where to go. And you wonder why. Because you're missing a key piece of Christianity, and that's the Holy Spirit. What traditions do we hold in this this church that aren't based on truth? What traditions do you hold in your family that aren't based on truth? Here's your practical application, and it's really simple. Seek the truth, and the, and the traditions will become meaningless. They'll be meaningless to you. Know why you do everything you do. Assess why you do it. Why do I do this thing? I've done it for years and years and years. Why do I do it? Is it based in truth? Find the truth. Seek the power that comes when you respond to the Holy Spirit. Go out, be changed, and help others see what it means to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there are these walls in our hearts that keep us from the Holy Spirit and the power that that has and the comfort that that has and the leading that that has, God, I pray that you would tear them down. I pray that you'd point them all out to us this week. God, don't let us sleep until we've gotten rid of some of this stuff, until we've identified what it is that's keeping us from you. God, help us to think that that's the most important thing. Not that when we leave here, what's for lunch, but what is holding us from you? What is keeping us from the Holy Spirit? God, lay that heavy on us this week and bless us. Help us to get out there, God, and be where you want us to be so that the Holy Spirit can use us. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit and that it's working and that it's powerful. In your name, amen. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed.